I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and associate professor of the Division of Pain Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Paul Christo. We're going to be talking about COVID-19 and how that has contributed to the uptick in opioid-related deaths. Telemedicine and telemental health services have emerged as valuable resources for those battling addictions during our country's expanding opioid crisis. Critical medications for maintaining sobriety can now be prescribed by telehealth or telephone. However, opioid addiction is increasing, in part because of the isolation and stress created by the COVID-19 pandemic. Those with substance use issues are finding it more difficult to find help due to the closure of facilities and the canceling of programs during the pandemic. Therefore, says Dr. Paul Christo, clinicians need to advocate to their patients that online treatment options are available. Dr. Christo hosts Sirius XM radio talk show Aches and Gains and is the author of Aches and Gains, A Comprehensive Guide to Overcoming Your Pain. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on. Thanks very much. Great to be here. All right. So we're going to be talking about the opioid, uh, the opioid, I guess, related deaths or the opioid crisis uh, because of COVID-19. But I guess there are lots of reasons people as I mentioned in the intro, isolation, people not, uh, I think one of the other things people can't, don't have access to medication. So they take too much at one time. I guess there are all kinds of reasons. Let's uh, start from the beginning. What, uh, what is the, what is the major reason? What is the problem? Why is there an uptake, uptick? Well, the pandemic has led to an ever-increasing number of people who have anxiety. Basically, it's caused a lot of uh, anxiety and depression and a lack of coping strategies. I mean, you know, I mean, the the pandemic has been really difficult for many, many people to cope with. I mean, it's led to a lot of economic hardship. People have lost their jobs or are underemployed. They've seen friends and family members die. I mean, and so that's led to uh, traumatic experiences. And overall, what we've seen is just a lack of coping strategies. And when that occurs, a lot of people tend to turn to the mind and mood altering substances and opioids are certainly one of them. You know, it's interesting, and being someone who doesn't take med- medications, uh, I, I, I'm sort of relating to that. It's been a year. I am somebody who has, I'm just giving you sort of a, 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 I just, a, a feel for where I'm coming from, but always traveled all over the world up until the, the crisis and got on a Southwest Airlines flight two weeks ago to go to Baltimore to visit uh, my, uh, my mother. And it was kind of this, not anxiety, but sort of like I'm sort of emerging into a whole world. I haven't been on a plane in a year. And it was disconcerting. It was, what's wrong with me? And things have changed. The TSA people are behind screens and, you know, everything is different. I don't know. I'm kind of throwing that in because that's sort of in a, what you call a normal situation, but still, it was, it, was, it was a very weird feeling, I guess, is what I'm saying. It is. It is a weird feeling, and that's a great way to describe it. I think the whole sort of pandemic has led to a strange a set of circumstances that no one was prepared for. So we have one group of people who have a history of addiction who 
uh, during the pandemic have relapsed because of the stresses of the pandemic. And then we have another group of people um, who don't have the disease of addiction or didn't before the pandemic who lapsed into that substance use disorder because of the stresses related to the, epi- the, the pandemic. So now we're talking about telemedicine and telemental health services. How do they fit in? They're not really a substitute for seeing a patient, let's say, who has an addiction problem to seeing them in person. Right. But they're a good second choice. I mean, you know, we prior to COVID-19, we really didn't access teletherapy, you know, telemental health services or telemedical services. So one of the positives associated with the pandemic is that now a lot of patients can access telemedicine and we can treat a greater number of people who can't come to see us personally. And in terms of mental health services, you know, telemental health services have certainly expanded and have helped a great deal of a great number of patients who has uh, substance use disorders, who have the disease of addiction, to connect them to a therapist, to connect them to, you know, a psychiatrist or to a psychologist, for example. You know, I have a friend who went to the dentist, I guess, for the first time in a year and had a tooth pulled and, and, uh, and uh, usually, you know, the dentist and or doctor are usually, you know, ready to give them a painkiller, but did not recommend any painkillers, uh, just, you know, take Tylenol and that was it, which was new. At least I think it's new. It is new. And, you know, this stems from several years ago when we started hearing more and more about the opioid crisis and the number of people who were dying from opioid overdoses. And it was thought at that time that the deaths were mainly due to prescription opioids. That is, you know, there were a lot of physicians, other healthcare providers who were prescribing opioids when they shouldn't have. Now, part of that, I think, is true. I think that what happened at that time is that there was a great deal of interest in treating pain. And believe me, you know, we've got 100 million people in this country who suffer from chronic pain. It's an epidemic in and of itself. So I think that it was reasonable and understandable why, you know, there was an interest in treating pain. But what happened at that time is that you had a lot of non-pain specialists using opioids as a first-line treatment for, for chronic pain. And that led to greater numbers of patients using opioids when they probably shouldn't have. And why do you think that happened? Is it because it's just an easy panacea? I mean, just take a pill and get out of my office or what, you know, don't, (laughs) don't complain Uh, or why, you know, I guess I asked the question. I think it was done in good faith. I think what what we were seeing at that time was that you had uh, a great interest on the part of hospitals on the part of medical societies to treat pain and to treat chronic pain um, because the devastation related to that is awful. We also started seeing in the literature, studies related to the use of opioids for the treatment of chronic pain, chronic non-cancer pain, that is, is what I'm talking about here, non-cancer-related pain. So, you know, it was, there was like a liberalization of the use of opioids for the treatment of pain as a first-line agent, when in fact, the most pain specialists would use opioids, and we still do today, but we use other methods first. And if they fail or if they're insufficient, then we turn to the opioids. So that was that's one, I guess that's one reason why people are taking opioids when they shouldn't. What are some of the other factors that are involved 
you know, why? Sure. Well, when that yeah. happened, so you've got, if you're using opioids as a first-line therapy, well, then, you know, you're giving them to patients who may not benefit from them and who may be at higher risk of opioid abuse, addiction, and death. And I think that's what we were seeing at that time. The other reasons for the deaths were not just the opioids themselves. It was the opioid combined with other substances like benzodiazepines. Valium is a good example of that. So we had sort of this polysubstance use problem that led to opioid-related deaths. It wasn't just the opioid. I think that was the misconception at that time. It was often an opioid plus another drug like alcohol or an opioid plus Valium that was leading to deaths. Don't you think, Dr. Christo, also our culture is like we want a quick fix? Maybe the doctor wants a quick fix in good, you know, in good faith, and the patient wants a good fix, and we don't want to work on it, or we don't want to, you know, you can have a little bit of pain, and it will go away, and, and if we maybe understand more about the process, which, of course, doctors haven't had the opportunity, if you're seeing them for 15 minutes, and uh, to really sit down and explain <laughs> things. Uh, so, yeah, right. uh, yeah, but if you understood the whole process, then maybe you wouldn't be so anxious to have that quick fix. Um, I think True. it's a cultural think, thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think it is. It's a cultural expectation in the United States, especially that, you know, if you have pain, that you're gonna, you need to have 100% of the pain gone. And, and it's, realistically, that doesn't happen. It, it's very rare that we can do that, especially a chronic pain condition. I mean, it's very rare that we can do that, and it's very tough. But in, you know, in contrast to other countries, Europe or Africa, Asia, for example, you know, the expectation isn't that if you have pain that someone is going to remove 100% of your pain. You know, you may have to live with a certain degree of pain. So I think you're right. It, it, in this country, it's what we've seen is this huge feeling on the part of patients who have pain that, well, they're entitled to 100% pain control. And, and really, realistically, it, we can rarely ever do that. I mean, I, I'm thinking of my own experience again. I have refused having painkillers, for instance, and I like the question on a scale of one to ten, what's the pain? And maybe I'll say six or five, and I can handle that. I can handle that for a couple, you know, so a six or a five is fine. A ten may be something else, and it's not a chronic condition. So I think delving into how much, and people have different tolerance for pain as well, right? Very true. Absolutely. So you're, you're the eight out of ten. Pain may be equivalent to someone's four out of ten pain. It's very subjective. So it really is important to sit down and discuss it with your patient, right? I mean, that would seem to me. But so what else? I mean, you have all of these. uh, We really haven't gone into statistics, but who are the opioid users? What are the demographics? Well, so several years ago, uh, when we started seeing this problem and when it emerged and we had data that described that, gosh, we have an opioid crisis here, uh, a certain fair percentage of those patients or those people were patients who were getting opioids from physicians. But then it was transformed from opioid prescriptions to the use of heroin, and that no longer really related to patients in pain. That was sort of a separate condition of, of people using heroin and overdosing on it. And now what we've seen over the last two or three years is a lot of 
opioid-related deaths from synthetic opioids. These are not prescription opioids, rather synthetic opioids. Fentanyl is a prime culprit. Fentanyl is an opioid. It's about 90 to 100 times more potent than morphine, so you can see why it can easily lead to death. So what about the financial part of this? Are, who are, you know, in terms of that kind of a drug, who is uh, fi- gaining financially from, from the uh, opioid pandemic, I would say? Or, yeah, well, it's the, those that are selling them, you know, those that are selling, say, fentanyl on the streets. And what we're seeing, too, unfortunately, is we're seeing uh, this drug called fentanyl being combined with other drugs that are being purchased on the street. Example, cocaine laced with fentanyl, Valium laced with fentanyl, methamphetamine laced with fentanyl. In fact, I think the recent data is that, you know, adults and even adolescents are dying from a combination of say, an opi- synthetic opioid along with stimulants like methamphetamine, cocaine now. So we're seeing a combined effect, a couple of drugs leading to deaths. What about in, uh, getting back to the statistics and who are the demographics? Like is this uh, high school, for instance, high school kids, middle school kids? Where does it start? Yeah, so adolescents, so ages, say, 13 to 25. And then those that are typically older than that, up to age probably, you know, 50 or so. I mean, 85% of addictions express themselves before the age of 35, and that's why I think President Biden and his team is trying to come up with strategies that address the risk of, you know, uh, substance use disorder or addiction in those that are younger, to try to target these kids at a younger age to prevent, you know, and mitigate the risks of addiction and death. And try to find out what the risks are and, and mitigate the, the deaths. Uh, what are we doing exactly, specifically? How do, what are we doing? What are we doing in the high schools? How are we attacking the problem? Well, I don't think we're doing a good job of it right now. I think that they're, you know, so the Biden administration is trying to come up with strategies to do that, to address, you know, the substance abuse problem in adolescents, uh, to try to educate them in the schools or even outside the schools to, you know, decrease the supply of illicit drugs that are available in this country by supporting law enforcement to do so, by expanding addiction, the addiction workforce. I mean, you know, there are only certain numbers of, say, you know, addiction medicine specialists in this country. Uh, very, we need a lot more. And what, so what they've done, actually, which I think has been helpful, is they've said, okay, um, we have these drugs called buprenorphine, suboxone, methadone that are used to treat addiction. Well, let's expand the availability of those to not only physicians, but to nurse practitioners and to physician assistants so we can get these important medicines out there. And what about, and sort of going forward, I guess, or what about people at the other end in terms of opioid addictions? People who have maybe older, sicker, chronic illnesses, what, what's happening in that demographic? Well, you know, that demographic, I think, so first of all, the CDC, fortunately, has been given some funding to collect data on these drug overdose deaths in all different age groups so that they can better target public health measures to fight the problem. 
Uh, we're also expanding the use of naloxone, which is an opioid reversal agent across the country. More work has to be done on that. But in certain states, we've got you know, pharmacists, for example, who can dispense naloxone, and therefore it doesn't require a physician's prescription. Law enforcement can also uh, dispense it. So in those communities that you're talking about, I think we're trying, especially in rural communities of the country, we're trying to uh, provide services there to those in need. Now, those are really uh, people who are abusing or misusing opioids, right? I mean, what we're, the other problem that we're seeing now is a, a huge increase in the use of stimulant drugs like methamphetamine. So, you know, when we're talking naloxone, naloxone isn't going to help somebody who's overdosing on methamphetamine. It's going to help and, and probably save the life of someone who's overdosing on an opioid, though. I'm trying to put this all into a big picture here as you're describing it. Now, we're talking about this is in the context, let's say, which we were talking about in the beginning, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. But what about overall culturally? Why are we hooked? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what is, yeah. are we, we are a drug addicted society. When did that happen? How much more is that than say, you know, you go back and uh, take a, get a historical perspective on it. What, what's happening in the bigger picture? Well, I, I think that the use of these mind and mood-altering substances, and what I mean by that is could be alcohol, could be tobacco, could be marijuana, could be cocaine, I mean, has been in existence for a long, long time. I mean, this isn't something that's new, right? It's just that, you know, what, what happens when we enter stressful events in our lives or we have something hugely stressful like a pandemic is that we, you know, there's a loss of, there's a huge amount of stress and a loss of coping strategies. And that's when people lapse into a way to cope. And drugs are a way to do that. I mean, you know, it's, it, that will be in existence into the future, unfortunately. But I think the trick is, and the key is, well, you know, can you provide people with other means of coping aside from the use of these mind and mood-altering substances? You know, the interconnectedness with others, friendships, for example, you know, valued friendships, partnerships, relationships is a great way to do that and to be helpful. And that's what we lost during the pandemic. So, like, from a practical point of view, how do you do that? Or how do you do that? You're the, uh, say, you're the, as I said, I think I said this earlier, the director of the multidisciplinary pain fellowship program at Hopkins. What are you doing at Hopkins to do that, to promote the connectedness? Yeah. Sure. I mean, well, a lot easier now than it was before, uh, that is, that we've got, first of all, we're seeing patients in person now. And then, second of all, we've got the use of telemedicine. And that allows that connection that I think is so important in terms of the doctor-patient, but also in terms of maintaining sobriety and also um, accessing help that people need when they are lapsing into substance abuse. So we can get them the treatment they need. We can get them to, you know, addiction medicine specialists. We can get them to, say, the American Psychological Association website that has a locator uh, for mental health practitioners. Well, I, I know as a social worker, it was always difficult to deliver services to people in rural areas. And now this telemedicine is, is fantastic for that. People don't have to go to the city or the nearest town to get help. But at the same time, they also have to have a computer. You're to, right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> so they do have to have a computer. <laughs> I mean, the telephone is helpful, too. I mean, you know, we can also, we can also talk to patients on the phone. Um, that allows some degree of con- connection 
and connectivity, and it allows us to help get them some of the resources they need. I was always terrified if I got a call from the doctor, <laughs> if he was actually calling me. <laughs> There's yeah, something really right. wrong. <laughs> Please don't call me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's changed, and it's changing, and that's a good thing, right? So there is the connection. Um, connection with uh, your doctor, but also connecting, I think you were at least implying, connecting with each other. There has to, you know, the, not living in isolated situation um, is helpful to people, right? I mean... It definitely, and that's yeah. what was lost for those who had substance use disorders during the pandemic. I mean, there was no, you know, these services were simply not available. Uh, AA meetings, for example, were canceled. Uh, and, you know, when you have a substance use disorder, one of the keys to sobriety is maintaining some type of routine. That routine could be, you know, exercising every day, for example, or getting together with a friend to go shopping once a week. Well, a lot of the routine was disturbed and destroyed. Now, what we're seeing, though, now, fortunately, is, um, you know, a recurrence of the routine and a restructuring of the routine that helps people who have the disease of addiction maintain sobriety. Yeah, that's helping people. Some people are really good at that, but I think people perhaps who are, have an addiction problem, it's very difficult for them to, as you, to, to restructure that routine and to do things differently. Um, and I think we're all going to have to do things differently, you know, just in, you know, as a result of the pandemic, sort of yes, reordering absolutely. things. Yeah, that's right. Um, reordering, restructuring. Mm-hmm. Reordering and restructuring. Yeah, exactly. So um, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, tell us um, website or websites that we can go to uh, for more information about your work, about what you're doing, um, about how we can get help if we need it? Absolutely. Uh, My website is paulchristomd.com, and that has lots of information on it related to my own radio show on overcoming pain. Uh, It has the podcast of all the shows that have aired live and uh, sort of blogs and resources. So I think that's a good tool for those who have certainly chronic pain and then for those who, you know, have themselves the disease of addiction or they're concerned about, uh, you know, someone who might have the disease of addiction. So that's a great resource. Uh, You mentioned you were kind to mention my book earlier. That's Aches and Gains. It's the same name as my radio show, and it's uh, a guide to overcoming pain. I talk about traditional methods of doing that and integrative methods and innovative approaches to um, helping, helping to restore your life uh, and manage the pain because it can be very difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I do. I wanted to mention that again. That's great. Your radio show, award-winning, nationally syndicated Sirius XM radio show, right? Aches and Gains. Yes. Um, Thank you. Yeah. A wonderful resource. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Great. Yeah. Really good information. Thanks for having yes. me. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 